Chapter Three of the Star Chamber: An Historical Romance, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Star Chamber, Volume One, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Chapter Three: The French Ordinary. The month allowed by the notice expired, and Madame Bonaventure's day of reckoning arrived. No arrangement had been attempted in the interim though abundant opportunities of doing so were afforded her, as Sir Francis Mitchell visited the Three Cranes almost daily. She appeared to treat the matter very lightly, always putting it off when mentioned, and even towards the last seemed quite unconcerned, as if entertaining no fear of the result. Apparently, everything went on just as usual, and no one would have supposed from Madame Bonaventure's manner that she was aware of the possibility of a mine being sprung beneath her feet. Perhaps she fancied she had countermined her opponents, and so felt secure. Her indifference puzzled Sir Francis, who knew not whether to attribute it to insensibility or overconfidence. He was curious to see how she would conduct herself when the crisis came, and for that purpose repaired to the tavern about dinner-time on the appointed day. The hostess received him very graciously, trifled and jested with him as was her custom, and looked all blandishments and smiles to him and everybody else, as if nothing could possibly happen to disturb her serenity. Sir Francis was more perplexed than ever. With the levity and heedlessness of a Frenchwoman, she must have forgotten all about the claim. What if he should venture to remind her of it? Better not. The application would come soon enough. He was glad it devolved upon his partner, and not on himself, to proceed to extremities with so charming a person. He really could not do it. And yet all the while he chuckled internally as he thought of the terrible dilemma in which she would be speedily caught, and how completely it would place her at his mercy. She must come to terms then. And Sir Francis rubbed his skinny hands gleefully at the thought. On her part, Madame Bonaventure guessed what was passing in his breast, and secretly enjoyed the idea of checkmating him. With a captivating smile, she left him to attend to her numerous guests and very numerous they were on that day, more so than usual. Sir Francis, who had brought a boat from Westminster, where he dwelt, experienced some difficulty in landing at the stairs, invested as they were with barges, wherries, and watermen, all of whom had evidently brought customers to the three cranes. Besides these, there were two or three gilded pinnaces lying off the wharf, with oarsmen in rich liveries, evidently belonging to persons of rank. The benches and little tables in front of the tavern were occupied by foreign merchants and traders, discussing their affairs over a stoop of Bordeaux. Others, similarly employed, sat at the open casements in the rooms above, each story projecting so much beyond the other that the old building, crowned with its fanciful gables and heavy chimneys, looked top-heavy, and as if it would roll over into the Thames some day. Others, again, were seated over their wine in the pleasant little chamber built over the porch, which, advancing considerably beyond the door, afforded a delightful prospect from its lantern-like windows of the river now sparkling with sunshine, it was a bright May day, and covered with craft extending on the one hand to Baynard's Castle and on the other to the most picturesque object to be found then, or since, in London, the ancient bridge, with its towers, gateways, lofty superstructures, and narrow arches through which the current dashed swiftly, and, of course, commanding a complete view of the opposite bank, beginning with St. Saviour's fine old church, Winchester House, the walks, gardens, and playhouses, and ending with a fine grove of timber skirting Lambeth marshes. 
Others repaired to the smooth and well-kept bowling alley in the narrow court at the back of the house, where there was a mulberry tree two centuries older than the tavern itself, to recreate themselves with the healthful pastime there afforded, and indulge at the same time in a few whiffs of tobacco which, notwithstanding the king's fulminations against it, had already made its way among the people. The ordinary was held in the principal room in the house, which was well enough adapted for the purpose, being lofty and spacious, and lighted by an oriel window at the upper end. Over the high-carved chimney-piece were the arms of the vintner's company, with a bacchus for the crest. The ceiling was molded in the wainscots of oak, against the latter several paintings were hung. One of these represented the massacre of St. Bartholomew, and another the triumphal return of Henry IV into rebellious Paris. Besides these, there were portraits of the reigning monarch James I, the Marquis of Buckingham, his favorite, and the youthful Louis VIII, King of France. A long table generally ran down the center of the room, but on this occasion there was a raised cross-table at the upper end, with a traverse or curtain partially drawn before it, proclaiming the presence of important guests. Here the napery was finer, and the drinking vessels handsomer than those used at the lower board. A great banquet seemed to be taking place. Long-necked flasks were placed in coolers, and the buffets were covered with flagons and glasses. The table groaned beneath the number and variety of dishes set upon it. In addition to the customary yeoman waiters, there were a host of serving men in rich and varied liveries, but these attended exclusively on their lords at the raised table behind the traverse. As Sir Francis was ushered into the eating-room, he was quite taken aback by the unusually magnificent display, and felt greatly surprised that no hint of the banquet had been given him on his arrival by the hostess. The feast had already commenced, and all the yeoman waiters and trencher-scrapers were too busily occupied to attend to him. Cyprion, who marshaled the dishes at the lower table, did not deign to notice him, and was deaf to his demand for a place. It seemed probable he would not obtain one at all, and he was about to retire much disconcerted, when a young man, somewhat plainly habited, and who seemed a stranger to all present, very good-naturedly made room for him. In this way he was squeezed in. Sir Francis then cast a look round to ascertain who was present, but he was so inconveniently situated, and the crowd of serving-men was so great at the upper table, that he could only imperfectly distinguish those seated at it. Besides which, most of the guests were hidden by the traverse. Such, however, as he could make out were richly attired in doublets of silk and satin, while their rich velvet mantles, plumed and jeweled caps, and long rapiers were carried by their servants. Two or three turned round to look at him as he sat down, and amongst these he remarked Sir Edward Villiers, whose presence was far from agreeable to him, for though Sir Edward was secretly connected with him and Sir Giles, and took tithe of their spoliations, he disowned them in public, and would assuredly not countenance any open display of their rapacious proceedings. Another personage whom he recognized, from his obesity, the peculiarity of his long-flowing periwig, and his black velvet Parisian pourpoint, which contrasted forcibly with the glittering habiliments of his companions, was Dr. Mayern Turquet, the celebrated French professor of medicine, then so high in favor with James that, having been loaded with honors and dignities, he had been recently named the king's first physician. Dr. Mayern's abilities were so distinguished that his Protestant faith alone prevented him from occupying the same eminent position in the court of France that he did in that of England. The doctor's presence at the banquet was unpropitious. It was natural that he would befriend a countrywoman and a Huguenot like himself, and, possessing the royal ear, 
he might make such representations as he pleased to the king of what should occur. Sir Francis hoped he would be gone before Sir Giles appeared. But there was yet a third person who gave the usurious knight more uneasiness than the other two. This was a handsome young man with fair hair and delicate features, whose slight elegant figure was arrayed in a crimson satin doublet, slashed with white, and hose of the same colors and fabric. The young nobleman in question, whose handsome features and prematurely wasted frame bore the impress of cynicism and debauchery, was Lord Ruse, then recently entrapped into marriage with the daughter of Sir Thomas Lake, Secretary of State, a marriage productive of the usual consequences of such imprudent arrangements, neglect on the one side, unhappiness on the other. Lord Ruse was Sir Francis's sworn enemy. Like many other such gay moths, he had been severely singed by fluttering into the dazzling lights held up to him when he wanted money by the two usurers, and he had often vowed revenge against them for the manner in which they had fleeced him. Sir Francis did not usually give any great heed to his threats, being too much accustomed to reproaches and menaces from his victims to feel alarm or compunction. But just now the case was different, and he could not help fearing the vindictive young lord might seize the opportunity of serving him an ill turn, if, indeed, he had not come there expressly for the purpose, which seemed probable from the fierce and disdainful glances he cast at him. An angry murmur pervaded the upper table on Sir Francis's appearance, and something was said which, though he could not gather its precise import, did not sound agreeably to his ears. He felt he had unwittingly brought his head near a hornet's nest, and might esteem himself lucky if he escaped without stinging. However, there was no retreating now, for though his fear counseled flight, very shame restrained him. The repast was varied and abundant, consisting of all kinds of fricassees, collops, rashers, boiled salmon from the Thames, trout and pike from the same river, boiled pea-chickens and turkey-pults, and florentines of puff-paste, calves' foot pies, and set custards. Between each guest a boiled salad was placed, which was nothing more than what we would term a dish of vegetables, except that the vegetables were somewhat differently prepared, cinnamon, ginger, and sugar being added to the pulped carrots, besides a handful of currants, vinegar, and butter. A similar plan was adopted with the salads of birds, chicory, marigold leaves, bougloss, asparagus, rocket, and alexanders, and many other plants discontinued in modern cookery, but then much esteemed. Oil and vinegar being used with some, and spices with all, while each dish was garnished with slices of hard-boiled eggs. A jowl of sturgeon was carried to the upper table, where there was also a baked swan, and a roasted bustard, flanked by two stately venison pasties. This was only the first service, and two others followed, consisting of a fawn with a pudding inside it, a grand salad, hot olive pies, baked neat's tongues, fried calves' tongues, baked Italian puddings, a farced leg of lamb in the French fashion, orangeado pie, buttered crabs, anchovies, and a plentiful supply of little-made dishes and kelkashows scattered over the table. With such a profusion of good things, it may appear surprising that Sir Francis should find very little to eat, but the attendants all seemed in league against him, and whenever he set his eye upon a dish, it was sure to be placed out of reach. Sir Francis was a great epicure, and the Thames salmon looked delicious, but he would have failed in obtaining a slice of it if his neighbor, the young man who had made room for him, had not given him the well-filled trencher intended for himself. In the same way, he secured the wing of a boiled capon, larded with preserved lemons, the sauce of which was exquisite, as he well knew from experience. 
Cyprian, however, took care he should get none of the turkey poults or the Florentines, but whipped off both dishes from under his very nose, and a like fate would have attended a lumbar pie but for the interference of his good-natured neighbor, who again came to his aid and rescued it from the clutches of the saucy Gascon, just as it was being borne away. End of chapter 3, The French Ordinary